Well, good day. It's a it's a great day. Uh, it's a great day any day to gather together as God's people. But uh, this evening we've got the bishop coming, and uh, one of our eight o'clock members is getting confirmed, which is really exciting. Uh, so I hope you're coming back for that one. But it means I'm so glad that you're here now, that we don't have an empty room, that we get to encourage each other, look at the Word of God together. Why don't we pray? How good is it? Father, thank you for your love and your word. Uh, we pray, please, that you'll uh, bless us as we delve into the riches of it and we see this mystery that you kept hidden and why it is that it's so important and powerful and also so threatening to uh, the world. Uh, give us strength, we pray, uh, as a result of hearing your word today. Amen. I don't know what you consider to be the world's greatest mysteries, whether Jessica Fletcher emerged, she wrote features. Uh, I think when I, uh, when I hear the term uh, world's greatest mystery, my mind goes to uh, that show by Leonard Nimoy all those years ago, or the current one, The Unexplained with William Shatner hosting. Uh, you know, maybe your mind goes to the incredible feats of engineering in the past, the pyramids, uh, those giant heads on Easter Island. Who built them? Why they built them? How did they get them there? Like, it's, it, it, they're marvellous. Uh, I'll never see them in person. You can't get a direct flight to Easter Island, but you know, it's, it's speculation. It's a mystery. Uh, maybe your mind goes to weird things and spooky things, Bigfoot and UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, uh, the intrigue behind them. They're great mysteries, aren't they? Blurred photos. Are they real? Are they all just shams? Uh, there's accusations of fakes and... No, but is there something to it? Are they out there? Maybe your mind does go to uh, the murder mysteries. I think there are better ones than uh, Jessica Fletcher personally. Columbo, there you go. <laughs> uh, Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, uh, the Midsummer Murders. If you think that where Jessica Fletcher lived was dangerous, Midsummer, man, don't move there. Uh, very, very dangerous. And and I've noticed the minister's always the murderer in Midsummer. Anyway, so. <laughs> Uh, uh, but unlike the other kind of mysteries, those murder mysteries come to a resolution. There's an answer by the end of them. You get to a point where the mystery is revealed. The detective drops the bombshell of where all the clues are pointed and how no one ever saw it, but here is the answer. And as we come to Ephesians 3 today, we discover, though, that there's a greater mystery than all those the world's greatest mystery, it trumps them all, the mystery that God has kept hidden for ages past. It's not an eerie sort of mystery uh, like Bigfoot, it's more like the kind in the novels, something hidden that would one day be revealed. And like the novels, someone had to come and reveal it, drop the ultimate bombshell that no one else saw coming. But unlike in the murder mysteries, it was the man who revealed the mystery who was the one who landed in jail, rather than the one the mystery is about. Which is how our passage begins, with Paul explaining why it was that he was in prison. Uh, because it wasn't because he was the culprit of some great crime, which he thought he'd gotten away with, but because the world couldn't handle God's great mystery when Paul revealed it. So today we're going to figure out what this mystery was, why it's so great and wonderful, and also why it's so threatening, and how it changes 
uh, everything changes and particularly what we pray for as God's people. But let's start by looking at why Paul was in prison because that's how he begins there. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then he goes off on a, a weird long paragraph on a kind of tangent. Uh, I love Paul's mind. It reminds me of myself sometimes uh, because he starts off talking about something you know, sidetracked. In fact, we have a point in our staff meetings now called Joe's Random Stories. And every time I try and go off on a sidetrack, Dave says, give me a keyword. I'll remind you of it later so you can tell us your random story. Anyway, but then he comes back at the end to what he was talking about. That the, the sidetracks are really important and uh, the, some of the great meat. Uh, the problem is when we follow the tentacles, we can forget where he started. But he comes back to this idea of being in prison in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That's a pretty strange sentence, isn't it? Not many times that someone can say to you that their own suffering is for someone else's glory. But in this case, that's exactly what was happened because why was Paul in prison? Well, you might say he was in prison because he was preaching the gospel. Uh, and in a sense, that's right. But you hardly ever get put in prison for just preaching the gospel. You generally get in prison, put in prison for something else associated with preaching the gospel, some implication of it that you've had to draw out. Uh, at the moment, uh, in Sydney, in New South Wales, the most likely things that will lead us Christians into legal problems is for speaking firmly and clearly against Islam or against anything to do with LGBT. They're the most likely reason someone would wind up before the courts. Uh, we've just had anti-religious vilification laws put in place in New South Wales. Uh, and we might think that they're in place to protect us. No, they're there to get us. That's how those laws have been used in Victoria to put Christians in prison in the past. But anyway, and Chris Minns has indicated he's moving hard onto anti-conversion therapy laws, which will almost certainly be used against Christians. But of course, the reason we'd speak against Islam or against LGBT ideas and practice is because of the gospel. The world is very clever at coming up with ways to hit us from the side. Uh, back in the 1500s, uh, the founding Archbishop of the Anglican Church, anyone know? Cranmer, that's right. Uh, Thomas Cranmer. He was burnt at the stake for the gospel. Well, not directly. Uh, he was burnt at the stake for his views on the Lord's Supper, on communion, uh, because he was opposed to transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and wine in communion actually are transformed into the real body and blood of Jesus, that you're eating Jesus now, like really. Uh, he preached against that. And that, that, that magical moment when they're transformed happens when the priest prays the prayer. Um, what, what's preaching against transubstantiation got to do with the gospel? Well, it's got everything to do with the gospel because it's something that the Roman church had invented to stop people hearing the gospel. Uh, instead of being saved by faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
You were saved because you're a member of the church and ingested the body of Jesus at the Mass, which they taught would give you just enough grace to help you live a good enough life by which then you could be saved. It's, it's a leg up. It's a leg up to saving yourself. But the Gospel says you, you don't need a leg up to save yourself. You can't save yourself. You need Jesus to save you. So in the 1550s, the whole method of salvation hung on the fact that this piece of bread was no longer a piece of bread, but actually Jesus' flesh, which is a denial of justification by faith alone. So Cramer deals with the presenting issue of the day because of the real issue that lies behind it, and he winds up in prison and then executed for it. What was Paul in prison for? Well, it wasn't just for preaching that Jesus, is, Jesus loves you and he died for you. Jesus saves. Because he was preaching, he was arrested because he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. That was his problem. Everywhere he went, it was the Jews who stirred up the trouble against him. Because he was saying that the Gentiles have just as much standing in the kingdom of heaven as the Jew, provided you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, that meant that the Jews who didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ weren't even in the kingdom. Well, the Israelites couldn't handle that. We're the chosen ones. We're God's people. He singled us out and no one else can have what we have. They can't have it and we can't lose it. And we know from the issues that we're facing today that you can't speak against people's sense of identity and that's what that is, isn't it? It's an attack on Israel's identity as the only people who can be the people of God. But you speak against identity and you get incredible backlash. Uh, the gospel challenged your identity. It challenged the identity of the people in Ephesus, you might remember. There was that riot over uh, the worship of Artemis because the gospel threatened that, because the gospel comes, Jesus loves you, he died for your sins, uh, you can be forgiven and go to uh, God's kingdom, well, that means Artemis is a lie. That means everything about our lives and our worship and our sacrifice, our industry is a lie. And the gospel still challenges people's identity today because if Jesus died for you and died for your sins, well, it means you're a sinner. That's a challenge to people's identity, isn't it? Um, it means that Islam is a lie because Allah uh, didn't send Jesus to die Jesus didn't die. Allah protected Jesus from dying. Uh, someone else was murdered in Jesus' place for you because God couldn't let that sort of thing happen. Actually, that's God's love for us is Jesus dying for us. And it means that also you can't make up your own identity because you've got a creator who's in the business of saving people and bringing people back to their right mind. And so it's a challenge to the LGBT community. The gospel challenges identity. Now, this is the mystery that Paul has been preaching. Now, Paul, of all people, understood the backlash because he himself had been the great persecutor of the church and of the Christians. He couldn't stand them. And in fact, he'd been hunting them down. We just read uh, a bit of the story of how the change happened. He'd been hunting down Christians and organising for their arrest and execution. He was on his way to Damascus to do more of it. He'd been given a license by the high priests of Israel to do it. 
But all that changed on the day that he met the risen Jesus in all his glory. And that day, Jesus didn't just reveal himself to Paul, which he did, but he gave away the mystery that God had kept hidden until then. The moment's recorded for us three times in the book of Acts. That was the first one which we read, but twice later Paul recounts the story and he makes the same point that Jesus' message to him is, you are to stop persecuting me, but then go and preach to the nations. That's why I'm choosing you. That was his role, to go and proclaim to the world you can be included too. And that is the mystery of Christ, that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, not just of Israel, but of all the nations, which is what this aside that takes up most of chapter 3 is all about. So there in verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation when, that day when Jesus came, as I briefly written, uh, briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's not a mystery like Bigfoot's or aliens, something spooky and eerie and ooh. It, it's not mysterious. It's, it's a secret. But why was that a secret? Because you don't understand it from the Old Testament until after the Lord Jesus dies and rises again. In the Old Testament, if you just read through from start to finish, which you know, lots of people when they become Christians try and do and they give up about Leviticus. But they, um, in the Old Testament it might seem as if God's only interested in this one group of people in Israel. They are God's people and all the other nations aren't and they don't ever seem able to be as we talked about last week. But when you look through the lens of the New Testament back into the Old Testament you find there's all manner of predictions and expectations that the day would come when it wouldn't just be Israel. It'd be all who have their faith in the Messiah, the Christ. But it's only after the event that you can see it. It's like when you've read the end of a murder mystery and discover who the killer is and then go back and reread it. And you go, oh yeah, no, there you go. It's obvious that he's going to do it because of you know, that speech there or that item that's on the shelf. I should have seen it. And so here's the mystery not known to generations before, but only understood by hindsight. And so he continues in verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, because I was going around murdering Christians, <laughs> to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So in God's wisdom and plan, Paul had a special role to play in history. It wasn't something he rose to because of his brilliance or because of his wit or his Pharisaic training. It was because God confronted him that day and gave him the role of taking the Jewish Messiah to the ends of the earth so that the nations might understand that they too could be heirs of the kingdom of God. 
and now that secret is out. It's been revealed. It's not a secret anymore. Why did God want it revealed? What were his intentions in letting the cat out of the bag? Well, that's in verse 10. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What was God's intention? To show how gloriously wise and wonderful he is. That's why he was planning all along to gather the nations into his church to show his all-surpassing wisdom. But notice who he's showing this wisdom off to. That's a bit weird, isn't it? To the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Uh, Who the heck are they? (laughs) What is he talking about? What does that mean? Well, he's talking about the supernatural forces and beings that exist behind and beyond this world. The Bible is very clear that there is a supernatural realm and that it does relate to and engage with this physical world. The, the Bible is very clear that it's there. There are angels and there are demons, there are spirits, there are cherubim, there are seraphim, they're real, uh, and there's Satan himself who's real. He's not just a, an invention to help explain things, he's real and he's your enemy and he stands behind all that's opposed to God and he's the one who's led humanity astray by his lies. One of the huge mistakes we sometimes make as children of the Enlightenment is to deny the supernatural altogether. It's a great mistake. And if you believe in God at all, well, you already believe there is a supernatural being, right? There's the creator uh, because he is supernatural and he created more than just what we see and taste and touch each day. Now, we're not to become obsessed by these entities, certainly not to worship them. We're warned against the worship of angels. Uh, But it's entirely impossible to become so sidetracked by obsession about them that we lose the plot. Uh, And we can see demons and spirits behind every tree or behind every affliction that we face. There's uh, local ministry set up to say that uh, if you've got a cold, that's because of a demon uh, down at Gilboa. There's... uh, um, there's, you know, if, you're, if you've got anxiety, that's a demon that's causing it, even if you're a Christian. It's not true, it's a lie. You can't be um, uh, uh, demon-possessed if you're a Christian. You've got the Spirit of God living in you. But we're also not to muck around with this stuff. The Bible warns and commands against consulting spiritists and mediums and astrologers. Uh, undoubtedly, many of them are fakes and frauds. They're charlatans taking people in. But there's something behind them sometimes that God doesn't want us to muck around with. You can read Deuteronomy 18, the strongest warning against doing any of that stuff. You might remember both Saul and the medium he consulted got the shock of their lives when they actually communicated with the dead prophet Samuel. Um, Don't muck around with that stuff. It can be dangerous. Um, But by the same token, we mustn't be afraid that the spiritual realm exists. We don't have to be afraid because God has triumphed over it and they know it. And that was God's intention in sending Paul to the nations with the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles can be saved to and become his people. That is to say, get this, that as we gather together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Jew and Gentile, male and female, uh, whoever we may be. As we gather in love for one another, not only do we show to the world out there the power of the gospel and the wonders of God, but we're showing to the spiritual powers and principalities in the heavenly places that God has won. This is this might look like a poor gathering of a few people, but actually this is the demonstration of God's wonder and power and wisdom. <laughs> Satan likes to think that he's one, and many people might think that Satan is one. You look at the world at the moment. Look at the Ukraine. Looks like Satan's winning. You look at the persecution of Christians in North Africa, it looks like Satan's won. Look at the news headlines every day about shootings in Sydney or whatever. It looks like Satan has won. But when you have people of all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of different ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, different ages and tastes, all treating each other with kindness, loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, um, it looks like Satan has lost because he has. And so the church really is the demonstration of the victory of Jesus Christ. It's certainly a demonstration to the world, as Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But it's also the demonstration to the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. Now, that doesn't mean that every church has to have uh, one old person, one young person, one blind person, one deaf person, one Thai person, someone from Spain, or, or we can't show the victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, we haven't got sufficient unity for that. It just means that, well, I have to love you and you have to love me. And we have to love each other. <laughs> right? uh, we, we might run night church in a way in a time that suits younger people, but Sue Waddell was uh, um, just as much a beloved member of our night church as anyone else until cancer took her a couple of years ago at age 70. There are no exclusion bars other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the thing that unites us. Remember from chapter 1 that we saw one of the great blessings that we've been given was that we have the understanding of God's plan to unite everything under the headship of Christ. Well, until Jesus returns, where can you see that plan of God in operation? The only place you see it's in the church. When God's people are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ to hear his word together, to sing his praises, to pray together and to love and serve one another. The world looks at the church and says, what a weird group of people. <laughs> it doesn't understand that this is an extraordinary group of people. The Emperor of Rome in 361 uh, was Emperor Julian. He hated Christianity. Uh, he thought it was an abomination and that uh, Constantine should never have gone that way. <laughs> but he couldn't help but be confused by the way Christians loved each other. He says, so weird, so alien. Uh, he, he wrote to one of the pagan priests running his temples and he, he was complaining about Christianity. He said, the problem is the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. <laughs> and, and so everyone can see that we don't help people. <laughs> We've got to fix that. 
Uh, I heard the other day about a sociologist at Harvard called uh, Professor Putnam, uh, who's famous for his study of communities and how they relate to each other. And he invented the term social capital. Uh, he says you can't just judge a place by its economic bottom line, that there's more to how we're going as a nation, a city, a, a suburb, than just the GDP. Because there's a whole range of non-economic factors which are just as, if not more important, family stability, interactions with neighbours and so on, crime rates. And, and so he's worked out how to measure this social capital. He's devoted his whole life, he's 80 now, he's the International Professor of Peace at Harvard. There you go, he's a sociologist. Um, he, he did a major study of communities that hang together and don't hang together in North America. And he found that in just about every case, when you have a society of mixed ethnicities inside, uh, uh, so when you have a society of mixed ethnicities inside a, a, com a common community, that the trust and confidence of the community decreases. When you get people from uh, Latin America and Africa and white guys all together, no one trusts each other anymore. Uh, and it's not that they don't trust the other ethnicities, they stop trusting their own ethnicities too. White people stop trusting white people, uh, etc. He has no idea why, and he has no idea how to overcome it. But he did notice something very odd in his study. One massive exception which he doesn't understand, can't explain, but because he's a ruthlessly honest academic who wants to know what the world is really like, He's not afraid to publish these findings firm in this world which is harasses and harms, opposes and arrests Christians because they stand, uh, they can't stand the God that we worship. We need strength. We're going to keep going as believers. We need his power to give us internal fortitude. Number two thing he prays, verse 17, he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. He's asking that Christ might be the centre of our very being, that he might occupy the place he deserves in our lives and in our church, in our emotions, in our heads, in our decisions, in our affections, that Christ would be our everything. Number three thing to pray, also verse 7, he prays we'd be rooted and established in love. We'd be understanding this love of Christ, that we might know the height of it, the breadth of it, the depth of it, because we've got to love one another. And the more we understand the love of Christ for us, the more we'll love each other. So his prayer is that we might comprehend the incomprehensible, fathom the unfathomable love of God, which is what will fill us with the fullness of God. That is to say, he's asking God to make us content in his love, satisfied as his people, not yearning for the things of this world, and hankering after the bling that's out there or delving into ways of searching for the supernatural that will only harm us. And lastly, number four, he prays finally that God would be glorified by us, his church, as we get on and express this wonderful unity he's called us to, that as we love and serve each other, as we embrace each other, as we deal with our quarrels and learn to forgive, as we stand together, all the praise might go to him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
along those lines. Father, thank you for this great mystery that we have the privilege of now knowing because you've revealed it through your Apostle Paul who was prepared to go to jail for it and even die for it. And we pray, please, that you might work this work in us, that you might strengthen us with all power, that we might stand for you, that we may be filled with the fullness of Christ, that he would be our all in everything, that we'd be rooted and grounded in your love, that we'd comprehend the incomprehensible, the breadth and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, and that that love might challenge and shape our love for one another. And we pray, please, with the Apostle Paul, that to you, who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to you be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.